fiction writers. If you've set a goal of finishing a publishable draft in a year's time and are looking for an in-depth resource to help you through each step of the writing and publishing process, Author Accelerator Certified Book Coach Susan DeFridis has an exciting new offering you won't want to miss. Workshops Against Empire includes five courses on story structure, crafting scene, mastering POV, querying and pitching, and more, with the goal of helping you reach your goal with confidence. It's an immersive program that's available in a variety of formats and price points, including a self-paced DIY course bundle. To learn more about the course and the year-long group coaching program coming next year for fiction writers, visit bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts to sign up for a free sneak peek with Susan DeFridis and Author Accelerator CEO Jenny Nash that promises to include tips you can use now to finally finish that work in progress. Learn more at bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Okay. Hey, this is the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast, and this is Jess Leahy coming to you from my office in Vermont. I get to go crazy when it's me introducing the show by myself. This is the podcast where we talk about all things writing, short things, long things, poetry, middle grade fiction, and all sorts of other stuff. And in general, this is the podcast where we talk about getting the work done. As I mentioned, I am Jess Leahy. I'm the author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. And you can find my journalism all over the place, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic. And today I have a guest with actually kind of a similar bio to mine. I have uh, Jamie Sumner on the show today. You have um, heard her name and voice probably before. And uh, and if not, I'm going to put some stuff for you in the show notes. We're going to have lots of stuff in the show notes today. I wanted to talk to Jamie today because she has a new middle grade book coming out that we're going to be getting to. Um, she also did some interesting things during the writing of this book that I want to talk to her about. Um, Jamie, welcome to the show. Welcome so much. I'm so happy to have you here today. I am so excited to be here. I'm happy to talk with you. I have always loved the AIM Writing Podcast from the very beginning. In fact, I think my very first middle grade novel in the acknowledgments, I put the AIM Writing Podcast as, oh, as yay. one of my, yeah, one of my thank you, inspiration, love you guys kind of thing in there. I have to say that has been, we've said this before, KJ and I started this podcast precisely because we wanted to lower or flatten out the, I was going to say lower the bar. That's not at all what we wanted to do. We wanted to flatten the learning curve for other writers because KJ and I, um, having come at writing from some weird angles, uh, had to learn a lot of stuff on the fly and it can be painful and it can be embarrassing. And, um, you know, once you've been doing this for a while, you learn a lot of, um, unwritten rules and stuff like that. So the idea that we would end up in an acknowledgement page, um, uh, we've gotten some posts just saying, you know, I'm so happy um, that I had sort of at least some writers to sort of 
support me through the process of the writing, um, especially, you know, over the past couple of years when things have gotten a little intense. It's just, it means so much to us that, um, that we can be helpful. It means the world to us. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Jamie has written for The Washington Post, The New York Times. She has written a bunch of middle grade novels, um, and I love all of them. Um, the books that I think the first one I read was Roll With It. Um, yeah, that was which, the first one that came out. Okay, so she has just these wonderful books that, and the, one of the things I want to talk about today is the fact that you do not shy away from difficult topics, that you embrace difficult topics. We're at a place right now where I think um, adults have had to start talking about topics that we sort of thought, oh, that's something we'll talk about later when you're bigger. I don't want to, you know, sully your innocent childhood with having to talk about like trauma and anxiety and um, financial insecurity and some of the things that you get at in your, in your, sorry, in your books. And I love that. I absolutely love that because as someone who has obviously worked with kids for a long time, who was a teacher for a long time, they can handle so much more than we think they can. And it's when we don't talk about these things, when they are pressing concerns for children, that it really becomes distressing for them. Um, we need to be talking about some of these topics so that um, kids don't feel so alone, so they don't feel like they're crazy for having some of these feelings about whether it's having um, sensory sensitivity or anxiety or response to what's going on in the world around them. But let me ask you, so what led you to write middle grade in the first place? And what led you to take on these difficult topics that um, for and, and let's start actually with a description of middle grade books and the books that you write and what makes them different from YA? And why did you land in this sort of age range? That's actually a funny like we, we we talk all about like strategies for planning books and getting proposals out there and finding agents and all these other things. And when I whenever anyone asks me about, so why did you start with middle grade? My answer is that I didn't even know that middle grade was a category. You and lots of other writing. people. Because right. it hasn't been until it wasn't that long ago that this didn't really exist as a category. As it, so I used to teach high school English um, for over a decade before I stopped and had kids and just can't believe that I'm a writer now. But all of that to say, when I was teaching, well, one, I taught high school, so I didn't come across those. But even even then, middle grade wasn't a thing. So when I grew up, it was picture books, chapter book series. Right. Um, and my mom was a librarian. She knew what was out there. And then you skipped to YA came around basically when I was, I think, in college, which was the first time I even heard the category YA. Right. And then adult, whatever. And so when I started writing, the voice of the character in my head and the situation she was in just naturally happened in middle school. Mm -hmm. So she was... 12 the middle of her sixth grade year okay and that's who she was and i didn't know that that was middle grade until my agent who had been my agent for my two nonfiction books that i had that came out before that said oh yes i'm just starting to pitch middle grade books <laughs> and i'm like i'm sorry what's that <laughs> and she, so she explained it to me and now middle grade is huge and it's such I mean, I, obviously I'm biased, but it is the best space to live in 
both in connection with educators, libraries, teachers, um, and also social media. Mm-hmm. They're nice. Like they're they're there's a little less of a controversial bent. I say this and then I always I just landed on a book ban list this week. So that's a whole nother thing. But um, typically the community is a really because the kids are just now getting into what I like, what I don't like in in what I'm reading. And they're very experimental. And so they're willing to kind of give anything a shot, which is why I like middle grade so much. Yeah, I love middle grade also because and we've talked to um uh, Matthew Swanson and Robbie, Robbie Bear in the past, and their middle grade fiction includes hundreds and hundreds, thanks to Robbie, of illustrations. So there's this incredible sort of merging between the picture book stuff that, you know, the younger kids have been used to and easing them into more text. And, you know, this is beyond, you know, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid stuff. It's But I love that intersection. I love where there's almost more flexibility. There's more of this sort of anything goes mentality because is it graphic novel? Well, not really. Is it, you know, a picture book? Well, not really. It's it's a really nice place in between that I just love. And I don't think there are as many rules as have been slapped on, you know, picture books and YA. I, I think it's a really open area. And I think it's, yeah, I think there is a little bit of um, skimming under the radar that, <laughs> that you guys get to do. But since you brought it up, I have to ask which book ended up on a banned book list. So... The sequel to Roll With It, mm-hmm. Time to which roll. roll With It, yes, which Roll With It was about Ellie Cowan. She wants to be a baker. Um, she ends up moving to Oklahoma to live with her grandparents, with her mom, because her grandfather has Alzheimer's. And so they do what they need to do, and they take care of family. And that was the book. And also, she has cerebral palsy, just mm-hmm. like my son. So the book, she's in a wheelchair on the cover. Um, but it's not what the story's about. Well, the second one, Time to Roll, Ellie, um, it's like the next summer after, and she gets roped into entering a beauty pageant with her best friend, Cora Lee. Um, and I cannot even begin to think of one thing that would land it on a book ban list. Like they haven't told me what particular things that have been flagged. I just know that in florida in particular um time to roll is which is crazy because roll with it and another one of my books has been on the state reading list for them before so it's just an interesting situation we're in but i've i've drafted i've signed a letter along with the we need diverse books people and you know it's just a conversation we need to have and it's again going to be a continuing conversation um, because I do talk about hard topics. Yeah. But what are you going to do? Right. I mean, these are these, this age is when they especially need to talk about hard stuff. Yeah. And one, one thing I have not talked to, um, we've had Catherine Roy on the show before, and she's just a, an incredible illustrator and writer. And she published a book just less than a year ago now called Making More. <laughs> it's about how animals reproduce. And I'm really curious. I, I need to get in touch with her and find out if she's landed on any banned book list. Because um, at one point, she was posted all these pictures from inside the book of, you know, what should be the cover? And of course, I voted for the one that was the rabbit's humping. <laughs> she's like, yeah, no, that can't be the cover. 
whatever, but I knew you'd vote for that one, um, which I think could probably get you landed on a couple of lists. <laughs> if that, if that, I see, I would love that. I would pick yeah. that book up. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Making more. It's it's not just about, you know, animal sex. It's about all the things about how animals reproduce and make more. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And I and what you said before, you know, I've heard this over and over and over again that it's some of the books that are on, you know, like this does a really great job of introducing kids to the concept of animal reproduction and then some places people are like, "Ooh, no, can't know about animal reproduction because anyway, we're, we're totally, as you might say, rolling off the topic, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about, so you write Roll With It. It does really, really well. It's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. Was your kid about the same age as your main character in this book um, when you wrote it? He was not. The inspiration, okay. I don't think I could have written a book. I mean, there's a reason the main character is female and older because- mm-hmm. I couldn't do, I couldn't write something that was too close to his experience right. because it would have been too hard for me. Right. Um, but he, it was when he started kindergarten and we went, you know, on the school tour to his public school and like we're going through the library and I'm a former English teacher. And of course, I'm looking at all the books they have for him and mm-hmm. for the older kids and there weren't any books with kids in wheelchairs yeah. or any disability related books where the characters are the main characters at all. Mm-hmm. And that I left and like, you know, that feeling people talk about like where you feel anxiety. Well, where I feel like worked up anger, ire, whatever you want to say, I get hot, like hot in my chest. <laughs> so I remember pushing him out, like pushing him in his wheelchair out to the van and I was hot. Yeah. And it wasn't like I wasn't mad at the library because they didn't have any to choose from, really. Yeah. There weren't any. But I was mad just that this is the world he's going into and this is the stuff he's going to have to deal with. Because Charlie, my son, is also mostly nonverbal. I mean, he uses a speaking device, but it's, you know, sporadic. And so for him to have to enter a world where he has to explain himself like that, because kids literally aren't aware of other kids like him or if they do they just see him and keep on walking like that you know I couldn't mm-hmm. not so so which came first for you the adult nonfiction or the middle grade fiction the adult nonfiction came okay first. so then how do you so I'm assuming you had an agent for the adult nonfiction mm-hmm. and I'm assuming you know your agent is like did your agent also represent you that same agent represent you for the middle grade fiction or did you get a new agent for the middle grade fiction stuff for example kj had to sort of switch over to someone who does fiction within the same agency as our non-fiction yeah. agent i remember that yeah she was switching or she wasn't switching she wasn't leaving the non-fiction but she was adding right, right. Yeah. um my agent has been my agent for everything okay so she traveled with me and sold Roll With It to um, Simon & Schuster and did all of that. And she's been with me ever since. And we just sold a picture book. And so she's kind of my – it was I was very lucky to have landed with her because um, she had the – had the, I guess – because she's an editorial agent. Let me back mm-hmm. that up. She, I always send my stuff to her and we always go back and forth. And so she had enough of an eye to help me get to the point where we were 
I could send it out. And she is just a great, she's very good at, if she doesn't have the connection, her demeanor in making a connection is one that people respond to, luckily. Right. Because I don't know that she'd done that much middle grade before me, but because of who, how she is, she can kind of get through doors. <laughs> so she was game when you said, by the way, I'd like to pivot away from nonfiction and do uh, do some middle grade fiction? She was. Cool. She was. Cool. Well, it helps that I actually sent her in the same, hey, just so you know, do you do middle grade? Also, will you read this? <laughs> and it was already done. So that did help. <laughs> help did to it- get her on board. Did it change much um, from that first iteration to what's landed on the bookshelves? No, not if not for that. I mean, since then, I've had books that I've had to do significant revisions on. You know, you get that editorial letter and you kind of like, yeah, want to feel sick. But yeah. um, not, no, that one hardly changed, which is great. So one of the things that is always so scary for me about both YA and middle grade is um, something that always my daughter said this a long time ago, and it rings in my ears every time. Oh, I hate this author. They write how they think teenagers talk, but not really how teenagers talk or middle grade or whomever. So do you, how do you get that language right? Because it's been a long time, obviously, since we were in that middle grade tween sort of place. How do you get the the language right? Because you do such a great job with it. You're, you really nail it. As someone who loves teaching tweens, you know, I can spot a faker, you know, someone who's just pretending from miles away. So how do you get that? First of all, you're so right. I think kids can tell immediately if someone is talking down to them or preaching at them or like, here's my moral. Let me hit you over the head with it. Some um, authors, I don't know authentic. that they've ever met a teenager. It's sort of, it sounds like <laughs> they're trying to translate some alien language and it's just not even approximately how teenagers would say something. So I'm, that's one reason that I love the authenticity of your books. I think for me, character always comes first when it comes mm-hmm. to writing for me. Um, so I spend a lot of time with my character in my character's head before I start writing. I am not a good outliner at all. I always try-ish, but then I just am often running and I kind of, the characters end up steering me. I mean, I know major plot points, but Mm -hmm. the characters end up steering me kind of where they need to go. And I think as far as voice goes, I mean, maybe I am just a middle schooler in my (laughs) internal dialogue as a human. I'm not really sure. But um, I think it's more like I make I make playlists for my characters that have like moods and themes to where if I start to lose the voice, I can listen to the playlist and it pulls me back into oh, them. That's good. So it's a lot of pre-work, I think, on my part to get to know that character and really like hunker down and look through their eyes every time I sit down to write. Because if I feel the distance when I sit down, I can tell immediately. Yeah. If it's too much agenda, too much, I need to hurry up and get to this next plot point. I have to stop myself before I start to write because those sections that you think don't matter, matter. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think it's the pre-planning of the characters themselves that help me um, make it real. That's cool. You know what? The, I, I don't know if you heard. I think I may have mentioned this once before. I don't know if you heard it, but my gold standard for someone who 
uh, just a, a scene that gets so at the heart of how a kid thinks is there's a scene in one of Beverly Cleary's books where Ramona's in the back seat and she and uh, Beezus or maybe it's one maybe it's Henry or one of her friends is arguing over a ribbon that her teacher gave her and the parent in the front seat gets gets fed up and is like, look, why don't we just cut it in half? And then each of you can have the half. Meaning like, you know, as a parent, that's absolutely how you would think. As a kid, I remember thinking when Ramona says in her own head, no, that would ruin it. Like this is a special thing that my teacher gave to me. It's not a ribbon. It's about so much more. And that divide between how a parent would handle the situation versus how a child processes the importance of this object to me is like the perfect, the essence of why Beverly Cleary is Beverly Cleary and she's so amazing. Um, so for me, that's always the gold standard is, you know, is this person really thinking like a kid would think or are they imposing their adult um sort of, and especially because I think that elevated sense of justice or that really specific sense of justice that younger kids have, that kids in their sort of late um, elementary, especially middle school, those years, they have this very specific sense of justice that I don't see, that I don't see much with adults. Um, and so I can see the difference from a long distance. And, and I, that's, that's the scene that always blows me away and thinks, yeah, she really can get inside the head of a, a kid. You absolutely nailed it with the sense of justice thing because you, I mean, you hear it all the time. I mean, I have twin nine-year-olds as well, so I hear it literally all the time. But that idea of like, that's unfair Mm -hmm. Or this isn't fair, or how come he gets this and I don't get this? Yeah. Or differing standards, man. Like that whole I can't use my phone and yet mom is on her phone constantly. That's the one I hear all the time. And, you know, it makes perfect sense. But well, and their willingness to say it. And I yeah. think this goes back to your very, very initial, like what we started talking about, which was hard topics in middle grade. And, and I think. The reason I keep jumping onto these hard topics is because I think the most heartbreaking thing is when kids stop saying that, yeah. when they stop saying what they're thinking and feeling because they reach the what's the point moment. What's the point? They're not going to listen to me. That is the moment that I'm always trying to fight, you oh, know, and if they're in a class maybe, or a home environment where they already feel that, if they come across a book that makes them feel like their emotions and their thoughts are valid, that's like concrete evidence that what they're doing and thinking is okay and should be felt and should be processed and should be spoken about. Even if the literal environment that they're in may discourage it, these books could continue to nudge them along until they get into an environment where they can speak it. I think that's why Fish in a Tree did as well as it did is, and that was largely a word of mouth book with parents saying, oh my gosh, my kid is identifying for the first time, has someone they can identify with that doesn't fit here, but oh my gosh, this is why, I mean, the fish in a tree concept has been around for a while, but the fact that someone was willing to put a voice to a kid who was feeling like a fish in a tree 
Um, and that, you know, that my niece is dyslexic and she, like, that book was comfort to her. That book was, oh my gosh, here I understand things now, or at least I can identify my way. I mean, this is coming back to something you mentioned earlier. This is why we need diverse books. This is why people, kids must be able to see themselves in books. And I was, it was funny because you were talking about the lack of, you know, kids in wheelchairs. And we interviewed Shane Burkaw a bunch of years ago, a couple years ago. And I actually can see his book. Um, my uh, people think my girlfriend is my nurse um, from here. I can see it on my bookshelf. And he, uh, he and I talked about a similar thing. You know, where are the books uh, with kids in wheelchairs and talking about what it's like to be in a wheelchair. They're just really not there. And the ability for a kid to see themselves in a book is vital. It is vital. And I I love that you're willing to talk about kids who need to, as you know, the title of your book, tune it out, you know, making it so that you can stand loud, you know, being around loud sounds and sensory stuff or anxiety in the summer of June or, um, you know, financial insecurity and made for it. Um, I think it's such an important topic. And um, and I love, by the way, that you thanked um, uh, Stephanie Land, the author of Made, in your acknowledgments with, for Made For It. And I want to make sure we have time to get to Made, made For It. I loved Made For It because I actually read, I never, I hardly ever read the acknowledgments. So I read the acknowledgments here first. And I want to just relay the first paragraph of uh, the acknowledgements here. I wrote this book in my bathroom with the door shut while sitting in an empty bathtub with a pillow in my lap. I think my foot might still be asleep. The pandemic had just begun. My children were home. My husband was home. We were suddenly so close in each other's spaces and the world felt big and frightening. This book helped me both distract myself from and also process the fear and uncertainty I felt outside that tiled room. It gave me so much. I hope it can give others a feeling of safety and bravery when they need it. Um, so talk to me about that place, writing in a bathtub. Because moms, moms can write, well, parents, sorry, I don't mean to just say moms, um, parents uh, who write uh, can write just about anywhere, as we have found. But I love the image of you in a bathtub. The part that I left out that <laughs> was that I was also sitting in my son's supported bathing chair <laughs> in the bathroom. So I'm like, thank you, Charlie, for this gift. So it was like a chair in the bathtub with a pillow and I had the air vent on, so I couldn't even hear the ambient noise of my family outside the door. That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I have written, I, this is something that people just cannot fathom, but I don't have a desk. <laughs> I don't have a desk. Um, I, I've written in our van while the kids have soccer games or Charlie has therapy in the bathtub, on the bed, wherever I because the story, at least in a first draft, is so intense for me and all mm -hmm. the threads I'm trying to hold in my little hands and not drop like the emotional threads and then the plot threads that I write kind of in a fury, like a fast fury of I've got to get this first draft out. And so mm -hmm. they tend to be really fast, which means I tend to write a lot long days of getting that first one out. And so that feeling during the pandemic was partly a sense of like what is time anymore like i had this feeling <laughs> yeah, of, like I, all the days are the same yeah. i remember what is time 
Well, I, I know how to mark time and it's by word count and pages and progressing in this plot. And it gave me a sense of structure, mm -hmm. even as frantic as it was. And the story itself was so, I mean, I tend to write very intense on very intense topics, but I do always try to handle them with humor and hope which I think mm -hmm. is a pretty big distinction. I think the reason people read some topics in middle grade and shy away from them is because when you encounter said topics in adult fiction, it ends dark. Yeah. You know, it ends darkly and or it's just painful to get through or it's too serious or it's too mm -hmm. heavy or it's too dense. But I think if that same topic is addressed in middle grade in the right way, it can actually be a banner of hope and provide encouragement, yeah. but it has to be handled in the right way. So I was kind of dealing with this topic and knowing what I would want to feel as a kid and what I wanted to feel as an adult during that time. And always, I mean, come on, we always want to feel that way, pandemic or not. We always want to feel like we're safe, we're cared for, what we do matters, that people understand us, that we have friends to catch us if we fall, that we don't have to get everything right. Like all of those things that as an adult, you always feel like you have to have it all together when you present yourself. Like it's harder to just be the bumbling you that's on the inside. I feel like I put into the writing of that book because the main character, Franny, is trying so hard to hold it all Hold could you tell us all. just for the listeners, could you just do a quick synopsis of what Made for It is about? Because you not only hit on, you hit on a bunch of topics that I just, you know, I personally love in this book. So Made for It, since you can't see see it right now, it's M-A-I-D, Made yep. for It. And um, the main character, Franny, the book basically opens with, they live in this very small town, town above a laundromat, um, just her and her mom. And the book opens with her being called out of class because there's been her mom's been in a car accident. And you see her panic before she knows what's happened to her mom or that it's an accident even. And you come to realize that her mom is a recovering addict from opioids. And so this is a very triggering incident for Franny which of course kicks in her, I'm going to protect my mom. I'm going to keep her from relapsing. I'm going to do everything humanly possible so she doesn't worry about money, her health, our life. And Franny's 12, but she's taking all this on because as a kid who's witnessed her mom in the worst situations possible multiple times, um, this is what she does. And so the book is about her. She takes over her secretly takes over her mother's cleaning jobs because her mom cleans houses and drives for Uber. And so she takes over these cleaning jobs to try to earn secretly earn money to save up and ho hopefully pay hospital bills. So her mom won't be stressed to just do anything she can to stay above water. Um, and so, yeah, the book follows Franny's journey of what she can and cannot handle and what her mother can and cannot handle and that idea of like there's a lot of middle grade there's a lot of books out there that show an addict's journey to sobriety 
Um, but if it's middle grade, it tends to be I watch this person in my life fall and then it ends with and that and then they enter recovery. Yeah. And then they were all better forever and ever and like Right. Or it's like, let's go to our first meeting, the end. And you're like, yeah. wait, 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 wait. What? Because there's a whole life after that where reverberations are still felt relationships are changed and kids still worry i mean it's not like you know kids are smart it's not like they think you know oh my parent is fixed now i mean it's not like an etch a sketch you can't just shake it and then we're starting fresh now that this you know they've seen enough they're smart they're Mm -hmm. so smart and so this is essentially the story of what happens after and what that looks like the redefining of relationships and refining your place and Gosh, all that kids take on now. Yeah. And don't feel comfortable talking about. Like there's a lot. Yeah. One of the things you do really well in this book and made for it is you're getting that information out without, you know, talking at the reader, you know, you, the information about the fact that her mom is in recovery and oh, did you get that from AA and you know, just these little hints you give your reader to help ease them into the idea of, oh, this is what's happening in this world, as opposed to, you know, our narrator breaking, you know, breaking through and breaking through the the third wall and finally, you know, just telling the fourth wall and just telling the audience, you know, the reader, oh, this is what's happening. My mom's been through all this stuff. And here is what I'm hoping and feeling and wishing and worrying about. Um, You do a really nice job of getting inside the head of the character instead and letting the character sort of lead you there through their actions and their words. And it's really, it's really, really lovely. Um, One of the other things I want to talk about really quickly is the cover is really lovely. Our our readers, um, our our listeners are not going to be able to see it, Um, but it, it, it encapsulates exactly what I hoped it would be, which is the picture of the the building with the laundromat sign underneath and the girl looking out the window. And one of the things I loved about this book and about when you wrote this book is you wrote this book during COVID during a time when kids had very, very little power, very little agency, very little ability to get out and do some of these things like, you know, take the reins and pitch in and help. And she's looking out this window and, you know, you were, we were all stuck inside during this time and yet you're manifesting through this character a lot of sort of what we wish our kids had had at that time, which is the ability to be outside, to take over and to take control of things and to have their lives back. So it's a really fitting and wonderful tribute to all the things you hoped for for kids, even if some of the stuff is a little bit rough. That's one of the things I loved about it anyway. I'm really lucky in that my editor always lets me voice my cover thoughts Mm -hmm. and we narrow it down with the illustrator and typically they, they have been really um, receptive of things that I've suggested. Have you had the same illustrator for all the covers? No, 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 no. The same illustrator for, so roll with it, time to roll. And then there's a third that's coming out. Um, oh, the good. last and final, if you want more of Bert, who is my secretly, not so secretly favorite character in all three, he's just incredible. That's the last one. But anyway, all the others have been very different illustrators. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, oh, gosh, we, there's so much we could talk about. It's, it's just crazy. But um, I have a book in verse coming out. Talk oh, about cool. Talk about getting to explore things in middle grade. Like that's really taking off in middle grade. But the illustrator in that 
ends up, well, it's a book about a girl who tries to swim a marathon swim across Lake Tahoe. <laughs> the whole thing. The book takes place in six hours. Um, but the way the illustrator did, she actually experimented with texture. So the water is gloss, but the sky is matte and she's standing in the water and just, it's so, I love how different all the covers can be in middle grade where there tend to be more trends with adult fiction. There tend to be more like a lot, all women's fiction is kind of looking like this now, you know, and all thriller is kind of looking mm-hmm. like this, but in middle grade, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was funny fine. when you said that I, I was reminded of a book I really liked called uh, Sharp Teeth that was about werewolves and it was written in the form of an epic poem. And I have to say, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But most of the time I'm like, yeah, you, you go for it. You write an epic poem about werewolves. Go for it. And, you know, Toby Barlow, who wrote that book, it did happen to work really, really well. But I, I'm always a fan of someone who takes the leap and tries. I just, my thing is I don't ever want to get bored and I don't ever want to repeat myself. Mm -hmm. And a great way to do that is if I'm not totally switching genres or audiences, it's to expand on the actual writing style that I Mm -hmm. use. So it's really fun for me as a writer because I want to have fun too. Like I hope they have fun reading it, but I want to have fun writing it. So um, this stuff in verse is really fun. That's something I'm kind of, you talk about um, the process of really just needing to get the story out and writing really fast and being, you know, as Stephen King, sometimes he says he likes writing best when it's skin on skin, when it's really bright and fresh and new and has to get out there. And I have to say, as as I've, I'm probably going to lay out a bonus episode um, in the next couple weeks anyway, it'll be actually precede probably this episode because this won't air until your book is about to come out in September. But writing fiction does not feel that way to me. Uh, It is just, I'm learning a lot about what, not, I don't even know it's what I'm capable of and and what I want to do. And one of the things I did was say I was going to write this novel over the summer and get it done. And as people will find out when you listen to the bonus episode, that's not how things have gone. (laughs) It's just never been that sort of, I'm so jealous because as soon as you said it, I'm like, that's, that's what I want. I want that feeling of rushing, tumbling story trying to come out. And it's just not been like that for me. So consider me jealous. I have to stop. I have to stop you because it's that idea any time you're trying to do something, I mean, think about being like a little kid and you're trying to blow bubbles in your bubble gum. Mm-hmm. It's like it takes so many tries to get that first bubble. And then slowly you get better at the bigger bubbles. And then you find which gums are the best ones for bubbles. And then you know how to take your gum out with the bubble still intact and stick it on something. And it's like then you get fast. But when you're just doing the bubbles in the beginning, it's going to be slow and weird and feel long and you're going to be more in your head about it because you're like, wait, I stick my tongue through the gum. Oh, but not all the way through the gum. Except except there has to be some joy in the bubble blowing. And for me, there has not been any joy in the fiction writing. And it was funny because when I was talking to my, we're getting so off topic here, but when I was talking to my agent about it, as I will reveal when I do this little bonus episode that you listeners will maybe have already heard, um, she said, well, there must be something fun about it or you wouldn't be doing it, which stopped me cold in my tracks because I'm like, 
Yeah, no. There is, I mean, what's been fun about it, it has been percolating the story. And now I feel bad. I feel like I'm abandoning this character and I'm abandoning this story that I really do love. But the writing has never been joyful for me. Whereas um, writing the nonfiction and the thing I'm working on now is nonfiction and it is full of joy for me. Like from the research to the, um, you know, coming up with the ideas to even just writing the proposal for this book has been joyful for me. Um, so it was a big relief to find that it wasn't about writing in general that wasn't joyful for me. It was just writing fiction that hasn't been joyful for me. And who knows, maybe you're right. Maybe if I were to pour myself into it, dedicate myself to a full, you know, however long of just only working on the fiction, maybe it would become joyful eventually. Um, but I, I'm 53 years old. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I want to work on the things that bring me joy. And that was just not bringing me joy. If if that's, I don't know. I, I want to say. You're going to sound a lot like KJ and Serena. I can just feel it. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Okay. And it may sound like them or not. It could possibly not be the fiction it could possibly be the story. I love the story. That's the part of it I love. I really do. I love this story. I love the character. Um, well, I love one of the characters. One of them is an awful human being. But I do love the story. And I think it's, I think the story is great. The question is, you know, do I then just say, well, that's a great story. And it's just not one that's going to get told. Well, here's my second thing I was going to say. Okay. If you put it away. Yeah. Which maybe you need to right now and if it drives you bonkers that it's not in front of you or you're thinking about it six months from now really thinking gosh i can't let that story go then you know where it is yeah because if it's if it's the kind of thing that you can put out of sight and you feel relief and it doesn't come scratching again then you have your answer. But if yeah. you put it out of sight and then you're still thinking about it next year at this time, then it means maybe you yeah. need to get it out and give it another go. The good news is it's fully outlined. So it's just sitting there. And yeah, anyway. Well, that was a fun diverging off the main topic uh, moment there. Um, let's take a quick break for um, a sponsor and then we will get back to what we've been reading. Hey listeners, if you love the Hashtag Am Writing podcast, you'll love the Hashtag Am Writing emails. So sign up! You get show notes and links, sure, but that's not all. You'll get invites to ride-alongs along with bonus episodes and thoughts on revision, TikTok, and more. Plus, access to commenting and chatting on Substack. And we will never, ever share our list with anyone else, because we wouldn't, and because that sounds like way too much work, and we're mostly in this for the hang. So pop your name on our list at amwritingpodcast.com. Okay, since you're the guest, Jamie, what do you what have you been reading and what would you like to tell us about? Okay, listeners, you're gonna know that I love this podcast because I already already had all my stuff ready to go because I have been thinking about this. So I read two books recently. This is funny. You'll laugh at this. I, I tend to not read a lot of middle grade. Mm -hmm. no, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I read my any author friends of mine that I love, I'll read. But as a break from writing, I tend to read very different kinds of things. So 
I just finished The Bandit Queens okay. by Perini Shroff. Um, it is so good. So it's about a woman who is basically, it's like the mob type situation, but for women. And she gets this reputation that she's killed her husband. So women start coming to her to get her to off their bad husbands, (laughs) which her husband has gone missing, but she has gotten this reputation that she has killed him. And so she uses this to her advantage. But what's so funny about this book is it's funny. Like it's, there's so much humor in it and there's so much heart because she is not your typical like Robin Hood character. Like she's very like, bumbling and unsure of herself and doesn't know how to take on this role and you see and it's a lot of like female empowerment that just hit me exactly at the right time and it's such a good book i think kj i'm looking at the cover it's black with some sneaky looking eyes and a very colorful title it's it's a good cover i like it it's a great cover and it's a an excellent book um and the second one isn't in, that one's new, newer. The second one isn't new, but I'll read anything by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Okay, so which just, one? Because I've okay. been I've been going back through her back uh, catalog too. I just read this one. Too. I don't know. It hadn't been in our library before. One True Loves. Oh, I have that one. Yeah, I have okay. it on. I have the audio, and I haven't gotten into it yet. It apparently was written a while ago, like way back. But I think it was just re-released. Maybe there's a movie. I don't know what's happening. But all that to say, it was really fun because I've read all her other stuff. To mm-hmm. go back and see her as a writer in her earlier stuff is so mm-hmm. interesting because the book itself is about a woman who it starts her basically her husband goes missing and is presumed dead. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking about the first book. Okay, no. <laughs> He get, he's in a flight over the ocean, the, the plane crashes, and he is presumed dead, and it's five years, and he's not coming back. And she reconnects, and she's engaged with someone else, and, and the husband returns. Yeah. And so she basically has to decide between these two men. And the thing that Taylor Jenkins read, I'm realizing, always gets well is the tension. Yeah. And the scenario she puts her characters in. Yeah. I was thinking about in terms of um, the seven wives, seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, same thing. Like, how do you maintain tension if you're talking about just a a string of husbands in this person's life? And she does a beautiful job in that one, too. She does a great job. And the thing that was interesting about this book is the pacing Mm-hmm. The tension was always there emotionally, but the pacing of the story felt a little bit slower than her others. And you mm-hmm. can see how she improved kind of that one aspect of her writing as she went along. And that was really fun because it, it was incredible already. But that was really fun for me to notice going back and reading yeah, she's really good at the tension and the when you talk about pacing, sometimes people mean, oh, the book just gallops along, but she gives some room to breathe in her pacing. She did it in in um Carrie Soto's back, she did it in Malibu Rising. You know, there's there's stuff happening and there's tension, but there's also room in there for the characters to have their moments, for things to sort of, you know, 
be naturally, I don't want to say slow, but um, the pacing is just really nice. I just really appreciate that about her work a lot. Yeah, those were two I'm, great ones. Especially since, speaking of the fiction that I'm not writing, um, one of the things I was really worried about, and I talked to Serena about this very specifically, is, you know, when you're outlining, you're thinking about your beats. And then I, all I'm thinking about is the beats, and I'm un- I'm uncertain on what goes in between the beats because, you know, I've got all this, I've read all this stuff about like, oh, you never want things to drag. Is this moving the book along? Um, You know, is this part boring and not driving the plot forward or driving people forward? And um, Serena had a really nice point, which is that you have to think in terms of smaller beats, that emotional beats are important, that um, relationship beats are important. And so once I did that, it made it easier for me to give myself permission for those smaller moments to happen that are what Taylor Jenkins Reid does so well, like these small interactions between characters that really tell us a lot about their relationship or, you know, the the context of whatever's happening in the book. And I'm really so jealous of her ability to do that. I also think that what you just described could also be a second, third, fourth draft problem. Yeah. You know, like if I tend not to let myself pause long enough and think about that in first drafts. I think it's because I was outlining so diligently and that was really, you know, I had set myself a deadline for the outlining and I was I was working really hard to only outline because my inclination is to just dive in and do the writing. Um, and I'm trying it that way. You know, who knows? Maybe that's not, maybe that's part of what's not worked for me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You guys can't see her, but, but Jamie's, she's shaking her head and she's got her lips smashed together. Like there are things I want to say. It's my teacher face. It's my teacher face. If you guys can know, just imagine your teacher. That's the face I'm making. Well, speaking of teachers, um, the book that I wanted to talk about is um, at the beginning of the summer, my whole family went off to Italy because my husband was there for was in Rome, going to Rome for work. And I wanted to do something completely different in Italy that I hadn't done before. So after we were done in Rome with his work stuff, we took off and headed south. And we went down to uh, visit a friend of mine in Pozzoli, right near Naples. And um, one of the things we did with her was Pompeii. I had never been, and yet I am a former Latin teacher. So I was just beyond excited. So after we went to Pompeii, I went back to two books that I love. One is called Pompeii by um, Robert Harris. And it's just a really wonderful book. This sounds so crazy. It's basically a Roman, the story of a Roman plumber in the days leading up to Vesuvius erupting. It's the person who's in charge of making sure the water flows in the aqueducts and something's going wrong. It's not flowing. And what they don't realize is it's because things are starting to shift and move because Vesuvius is about to erupt. So it's a really wonderful novel about life in Pompeii at that time. And then in order to get some Nonfiction in there, I um, read The Fires of Vesuvius by Mary Beard. And Mary Beard is like the queen bee of all things Roman history. And her book, uh, The Fires of Vesuvius, sort of took me into the nitty gritty details of life in, in Pompeii um, in the right before and after uh, Vesuvius erupted. And also gave me a new way to think about 
she had this great point that I can't seem to get out of my head, which is people make all these assumptions about Pompeii based on what they found there in Pompeii, which it's almost like we imagine it as the, you know, the ash descended on Vesuvius because it was a pyroclastic eruption. It wasn't lava, it was ash. And um, people died instantly. And so therefore, that's exactly what life in Pompeii was like at that moment in 79 AD. And she points out that they actually, some people were fleeing and people were moving things around and people were trying to figure out, should I stay? Should I go? Some people had a little bit of sort of notice that something was going on. And so we can't make assumptions based on that snapshot about, you know, like, oh, people always kept, as she said, people always kept their rakes in the kitchen. Well, maybe they didn't keep the rake in the kitchen. Maybe they had the rake in their hand and they ran through the kitchen and put it down because they were freaking out because they heard a big sound outside. Anyway, it was a wonderful new way to think about, um, Pompeii. And I'm really grateful that, you know, my romantic fantasies about Pompeii got a little dose of reality with some merry beard. So the fires of Vesuvius is definitely worth reading if you are at all interested in that stuff, which I absolutely am. Have you been to Pompeii? I have not, but both of those sound incredible. I also, I didn't teach Latin, but I took Latin all the way through AP Latin. (laughs) And it was like, I don't know what part of my brain just latched on to Latin as this is really this is a really fun puzzle. But I loved when we would stop and we would do the history and we would do it's just it makes it's like any time you read about any culture, if you stop and pause and learn the history, especially before you travel or while you're traveling, it makes it so much more vivid and significant in your brain. So both of those sound really yeah. It was great. Those books are really just fun reads. Anyway. All right. We have totally run over our time because we've had so much fun talking. Um, but thank you so, so much for being here. I'm going to link to Jamie's webpage, to all of her books, to her articles. Um, and of course, we'll have links to everything else we've discussed in the podcast. And um, and again, just thank you so much for being here. And I'm so glad that Am Writing has been a place of um, inspiration for you. Because like I said, that's why we made it in the first place. It has. And this was wonderful. And you all are wonderful. And I love, I think the biggest thing that I'm just going to, this. I'm going to end on this because I could go on forever. But I think the biggest thing that this podcast does and you all do is your willingness to be vulnerable about your writing. Um, I think that's very important for fellow writers to see and hear and for readers to see and hear. I mean, I think it's, it's why I do school visits and talk to the kids. And I think it's important to show that nothing comes out perfect. And if it did, I would be very suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that in mind, until next week, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.